Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Did Paul just wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Why? <laughs> why would he go and say say things like that? Yeah. And I, and it's and it's fantastic actually. In looking at earlier reception, because it helps you to see. Wait a second. This is the gravity of what these people are doing. This is why Paul makes such a big deal of this because he's really put his finger on something. In his book about Saint Paul and works of the law, theologian Matthew Thomas explains why first-century Christian Jews, including for a little while Saint Peter himself who held to the old covenant after the new one had been given, that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, drove Paul up the wall. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Adinius, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. And if you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Our guest today is Matthew Thomas. He's Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology Department Chair at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, which is part of UC Berkeley's Graduate Theological Union, where he teaches the Old and New Testaments, patristics, and biblical languages. This is Matthew's third time appearing on the program, though, to be honest, the first two times were really back-to-back episodes a week apart. So really, it was one conversation in, in two pieces, and that was back in February of this year. At that time, I read the bio that said he completed his Doctorate of Philosophy and Theology at the University of Oxford and wrote his dissertation about the writings of St. Paul, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. That dissertation has become a very important book called Paul's Works of the Law in the Perspective of Second Century Reception. And back then, I also said he met his wife at Regent College in Vancouver, where they were taking the same Hebrew class, and the couple has four children, all of whom are aspiring theologians. And I got to meet those aspiring theologians because they were kind enough to come over to our place when our little ones got their first communion a few weeks back. So I'm glad that I'm not only your host, we're now friends, and uh, it's been a great pleasure knowing you this year. Uh, It's June, it was February, it feels like no time has passed, but welcome back. (laughs) Thank you very much. Just as a note for any future guests, if you do two episodes, um, (laughs) this is me, I'm sort of guessing here, but my understanding is if you do two episodes, then you get free beer and hot dogs. Yes. Uh, At least that's been my experience is after doing two episodes before, before I did the third, you get the free, the free beer and hot dog, which worked out really well for us. So anyway, (laughs) I I really appreciate that. That's true. That's actually true of anybody who shows up anytime, (laughs) but especially if you do two episodes. And then did I see, did I see recently that you had uh, Father Gregory Boyle on? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I was just going to say, no, my, I mean, my, my background is in, uh, is in inner city ministry and it was, uh, so, I mean, he's, you know, he's of course, you know, legend in that, in that area. And I remember, uh, you know, before, uh, this was kind of just as I was getting, getting started in, in that, um, this is my senior year at Pepperdine. We went down to homeboy industries, um, in Los Angeles and had a chance to see 
you know, kind of real life, the stuff that he was doing and sent. So then, uh, you know, for me seeing, uh, you know, the impact of, you know, what that kind of gospel ministry was doing, uh, you know, people's lives there really was a huge inspiration for, for me, for what I ended up going on to, to do working in, in Oakland with young people there. And so, you know, he's really the, the, you know, the gold standard in a lot of ways. So it's great. You're able to get him, get him on there. Yeah, he really is. And he has um, a bottomless amount of just beautiful YouTube videos and sermons. And if you go to Homeboy Industries, and if you go back and look at our episode, I think it's episode 17. It was like a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. Um, and just very generous. And part of being a, a podcast host, is just, and you're a great example of this, is you just email people out of the blue and they often say, sure, that sounds fun. That's great. Well, yeah. I'm really only in it for the hot dogs, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's clear. <laughs> yes, yes. Fair is fair. Anyway, let's talk about this book because I know I know you're you're one of the aspiring theologians needs to have a nap in in a little less than an hour. <laughs> um, your book, Paul's Works of the Law in the Perspective of the Second Century Reception. Well, first of all, before we talk about Paul's uh, works of the law, who, Paul the Apostle, yeah. born Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee, especially dedicated to keeping Mosaic law, which is very relevant to your discussion. He was a Roman citizen. He participates in the killing of Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7 and 8. He approved of it, and Stephen's bloody garments were laid at his feet, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles. And then, pow, on the road to Damascus, what happened? Yeah, gosh, great question. Really well done with that clapping noise, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I was really did a really good job of recreating what the uh, the Damascus Road yeah. Epiphany was like. Um, so, the I think that the essential difference between you know Paul before this encounter and Paul afterwards is um, prior to this, he did not believe that Christ was the Messiah. And not believing that Christ was the Messiah, he did not believe that the new covenant, which had been, you know, prophesied, you know, prophesied by, by Moses and the prophets, had been inaugurated. Um, he didn't believe that he was the figure, uh, you know, spoke of in Isaiah. He didn't, didn't believe any of these things uh, that he, you know, he didn't, didn't recognize it. Um, the Damascus Road experience made it so that he did believe that Christ was the Messiah, that he was the promised anointed one of God, and that in being the promised anointed one of God, that he had inaugurated the new covenant, and that this new covenant itself, being promised by Moses and being promised by the other figures, had precedence over everything that has come before, um, you know, as they themselves Said, said that it would. It's interesting because you can you can actually take this and jump a bit to the conclusion. But I talk about this mm -hmm. in uh, you know in the ending of the book. Actually, when it when it comes down to it, the the conflicts that Saint Paul has over you know works of the law and obeying the Torah, etc. They're actually at heart not really about faith or works or anything like that at all. They're actually the most fundamental question is is Christ the Messiah? Because if he is the Messiah, then the covenant that he inaugurates and everything that goes along with that covenant, the ordinances that are there, the administration of it, if he is the Messiah, if he is the, the promised prophet like Moses, then of course, what he says, what he does is going to take precedence over everything that has, that has come, come before. And that's something that it's interesting. It seems as though Jews in this period also seem to, to agree with. If he's not the Messiah, 
if he, you know, if, if he's mm-hmm. not sort of who, who he claimed to be, then the Mosaic Covenant is still still chugging along insofar as it, you know, can be chugging along. And mm-hmm. we're still sort of in the period of waiting for who is it that Christ is going to send to fulfill these these promises. That actually ends up being, and you, you see this through looking through the early, early reception of, of these texts, that's actually the most fundamental question. So the same thing that uh, was, I think, most fundamental for Paul on the Damascus Road ends up being the most fundamental bit of information when it comes to all of these debates about faith and works and the law, et cetera. Is Christ actually the Messiah? Because if he is, then that that really that that changes everything. Okay, I as and we say that in in Easter, right? This changes everything. And I just want to say this is such a different problem than we have today, two thousand years later, where people say like, well, is there even a Jesus, or is this just an allegorical story? Uh, like there is no question for even his earliest detractors that there was a Jesus. And even if you fast forward to 600 years, uh, Muhammad has no problem with there being a prophet Isa. What he disagrees with is that this is the son of the living God who is the Messiah who rose and, and died. So that is a different problem. Um, and I think like, what are we supposed to do about it? That's got to be what is the works of the lie? Like, are, is it all taken care of, which is what we think is the good news? Or is there stuff you're supposed to you're supposed to be doing the law. And then how, what is that law? And so your dissertation that became a book, uh, which was called by N.T. Wright, detailed, patient, historically careful, theologically explosive, answers, what is at stake here? What's the debate about works of the law that theologians and biblical scholars are so interested in? What's at stake? What does it matter about grace and laws? Uh, What what about the one-time redemptive sacrifice and grace? What do you say? Yeah, so um, this... I mean, the significance of this question will in part depend on where you're coming from. And so part of the interest for a project like this is ecumenical, because if you're looking in the 16th century, um, it is the antithesis that you find in Paul in Romans and Galatians, where he goes and talks about being justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is this particular antithesis that is at the center of what you find within the, you know, the Lutheran and, you know, Calvinistic reformations and which Luther and Calvin are consistently pointing back to as giving, you know, the rationale for why it is that they're doing what they're doing, you know, the the basis of, you know, their, their, their own reforms. And they in their period see their opponents uh, largely being, you know, the medieval uh, Catholic Church, um, as being in the same position, committing the same prop, you know, uh, you know, errors, uh, falling for whatever the issue is with works of the law, in the way that uh, Paul's Judaizing opponents had, you know, been been in in error, and so um, this ends up, you know, ecumenically being a big deal between Protestants and Catholics, and then also ends up being a big deal between Protestants and Protestants uh, when you get the new perspective on Paul, which. Uh, this has been around for, I don't know, say 40, 45 years and uh, inaugurated by the work of, of E.P. Sanders in the late 70s. Uh, and then figures like uh, Jimmy Dunn and T. Wright and then a whole host of others since then who have basically looked at Second Temple Judaism. So the kinds of folks that Paul would have been in dialogue with and would have been arguing with and just says these Folks don't sound anything like 
the medieval Catholic church. And so whatever it is that Paul is arguing against, whatever it is that he is, you know, saying is the problem with works of the law, it doesn't seem to be things that are like analogous, like, you know, with indulgences or whatever happens Mm -hmm. to be, or an overemphasis on good works. You just, it just doesn't seem as though Jews in this period were trying to individualistically save themselves by, you know, performing these good works. So this 16th century big, you know, Protestant Catholic divide since, you know, the late seventies has been a big Protestant versus Protestant divide because you see, you know, a lot of kind of more traditional Protestants looking at the new perspective and saying, well, you're selling out the Reformation. You know, if this is, if this is right, that, you know, Luther and Calvin were kind of anachronistically projecting their own conflicts onto Paul and his interlocutors. Well, then does this mean that the whole Reformation is wrong then? And, you know, some new perspective folks will say, no, of course not. There's other things that are valid. And then other new perspective folks will go and say, well, actually, that's a good question. Maybe that was in some ways misguided. And so, so you have you have a lot of implications with all this, and what? what I no, guess can I say can is, I say re- repeat back to you what what I think you just said? Absolutely. Is that in in the fifteen fifteen tens, fifteen twenties, fifteen thirties, Luther and then later Calvin look around and they say this is not okay because here come uh, clerics from Rome up into Germany and they are asking us to buy these indulgences to put these metal coins in this little box uh, so that souls are loosed from from purgatory and so on. But really, it's to build St. Peter's Church and to lead the crusade against the Turks and things like that. And they're saying this has nothing to do with redemption and salvation. Nobody should be doing works or contributing money. This is too, uh, what do you call it, transactional and it's it's corrupt. And then for centuries since that time, people have said like, aha, this corresponds to works for the law back in the first century, second century, but really first century, St. Paul is saying um, there is no salvation through works. There's it's only through grace. But the two things are not connected. The, the, they're, they're using the same word for two different ideas. Yes. So that is the, the, the pers- sort of your, the, what you might call the old perspective. So a Lutheran or Calvinist. Um, and that's, these are terms that I'm not making up the, the, yeah. the these are the way that the, the debate has looked for the past 40, 45 years, the old perspective. So Luther Calvin, uh, would say, no, what Paul was dealing with is basically what the Judaizers were, you know, were, you know, sorry, what, what, what Luther and Calvin were dealing with is basically what Paul was dealing with the Judaizers and saying, no, both sides are trying to save themselves by works instead of faith or, you know, grace or Christ, whatever ha- happens to be. Um, the new perspective would look at that and say, yeah, it just doesn't seem like historically that analogy works fantastic. Like there's maybe some areas of overlap and you know, individual interpreters will vary on that. Um, but they seem to really be, you know, addressing distinct issues and nobody really gains from going and taking the late medieval Catholic church and alighting that so that it is, Second Temple Judaism and vice vice versa. Um, you don't you don't end up getting a better representation of the late medieval church or Second Temple Judaism or early Christianity or anybody if you conflate these uh, these various conceptions. And so what so you have all these all these back and forth and kind of arguments uh, all, all over the place. And if um, what my book does as far as what what's what's unique with it is um, I have tried to look at the early Christian reception of these texts and seeing when, you know, when early, you know, Paul's early, early readers, hearers, when they are hearing and, you know, being justified by faith apart from works of the law, what do they understand by works of the law? What does it seem to have meant in that early historical context? And I think both from a historical standpoint, 
And then also more broadly, ecumenically and thinking about the importance of the early church, I think that there's real potential that these early sources have to help to adjudicate between all these various warring parties, whether it's on Catholic Protestant side, whether it's Protestant versus Protestant side, as far as old perspective, new perspective. Um, there's a, a privileged vantage point that, you know, Paul's early readers have in being, you know, knowing Paul or knowing people who knew Paul or, you know, sharing the same language, culture, etc. Um, and so we... Now, I think you should say this. there's also a problem that you found that Paul himself can be taken either way because the same Greek word can be either faith or faithfulness. So you can sort of read it the way you want. So there you're going to people who heard him and trying to figure out how they understood it because you think they'd be correct. That's correct. That's correct. And so I think that that's actually, I think you can look at all, all of the terms there. So uh, faith, justification, works of the law. And I think that the early church is going to be helpful on, on all of those. My particular study uh, has focused on, on works of the law because in particularly within the old and new perspective debate, that I, that one really seemed to be the hinge one where um, it seemed as though both both old and new perspective sides were saying at least similar things when it came to the nature of faith, the na- nature of justification. But when it came to works of the law, um, the way that they conceived of Paul's opponents, which is really, really different. And so Luther and Calvin are saying, well, the problem with works of the law is everybody's trying to save themselves individualistically by doing all these, you know, good works and trying to sort of earn all this merit so that God will go and accept them. The new perspective says that's not what Jews in this period are talking about. When you're talking about works of the law, this is referring to the Torah. And so do you follow the Mosaic law? Do you participate in the Mosaic covenant? And primarily the things that are associated with that are things like, you know, circumcision, food laws, Sabbath keeping. And when you take these works on, what you're doing is you're not trying to earn a certain amount of individualistic merit points. It's a communal significance. You're becoming part of the Jewish nation. You're becoming part of the covenant. And this is important because the Jews are God's people. And so if you want to be saved, if you want to be part of God's people, then you need to follow the Jewish law. You need to go into become, you know, become, become a Jew. And so you can see how those two different conceptions of Paul's opponents are going to really change the way that you understand what's happening in those texts. And will also, I think, have a, um, they'll affect the way that you understand what it is that Paul means by faith as well. So if, because uh, I mean, if, that, if faith is the term that's set in antithesis to works of the law, is faith this sort of like absolute, just kind of believing rather than any kind of doing? Or is it something that is more active, which is set in contrast to just observing, you know, the, the mosaic precepts? So um, yeah. you can see how that would, you know, would be a lot, a lot of uh, implications that would come from this, this one, one term. Well, and here you can see the stakes are enormous because either the, the, the route back to God through salvation is to join the Jews so that you could become part of this expanded chosen people or to say, actually, there is no Jew, there is no Greek. It, we are all one in Jesus Christ. It does not matter if you eat pork or are circumcised or c- celebrate Saturday or Sunday or, or what have you. Uh, it, it, Christ died for us all, which completely turns... Everything that a Pharisee like Paul before he was like Saul before he was Paul would have believed in, which also explains why he would get so upset when um, his early Christian brothers and sisters would slide a backslide, like where Peter started once again keeping kosher suddenly uh, in in Galatia, which uh, is in no Antioch. I don't know. You tell me. Where did Peter start to uh, <laughs> go back to his old ways? 
Yeah, yeah. So this is, um, so this, this is in, in Antioch, but you have the, you know, the incident detailed in, in Galatians. That's so, it, yes. So yes. you're right, on, you're right on both accounts. Yeah. And again, jumping a bit to the, con- you know, conclusion, this is, you know, just followed from what we talked about earlier. If you're looking at the, the early reception of sex, why is it that Paul is, And that's, you know, that's a term that you coined, right? Because we had old perspective, new perspective, and you are adding early perspective. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Early, yes. early perspective. So if you look in these, these early perspectives, you know, why is it that Paul in Galatians, why does he say, why is he so angry? Like, what's the, uh, why is it that he would go and say, Hey, those who are trying to disturb you, who are trying to go and seduce you or true trying to, you know, have you be circumcised. I wish they would just go and emasculate themselves. Like, did Paul just wake up on the wrong side of the bed why <laughs> why would he go and say say things like that yeah and i and it's and it's fantastic actually in looking at early reception because it helps you to see wait a second this is the gravity of what these people are doing this is why paul makes such a big deal of this because he's really put his finger on something if you continue to insist upon the mosaic law within the period of or what's supposed to be the period of the inaugurated new covenant not the you know mosaic covenant if you're saying no you have to go and continue obeying the mosaic law what you're in effect doing is you're denying that christ has come because christ is going to be the new lawgiver he is going to give you a new covenant and so those who are insisting and saying no you have to go and be circumcised you have to follow all the you know mosaic injunctions etc you have to abide abide by the terms of the old old covenant they are in effect denying that christ is the messiah that he is actually the one that moses spoke about the prophet who was going to be like him and that he has inaugurated this new and eternal covenant it's this denial which Paul recognizes to be so antithetical to everything that has happened up to this point. And in so doing and saying, oh, no, you have to go back to these terms. He goes and he recognizes now, like, if if you do that, then you really are cut off from Christ because he is the one within the period of the new covenant who is the ultimate authority. It's not Moses who's the ultimate authority. It's Christ. It's, it's you know, it's the one that Moses himself spoke of, you know, the one who Moses you know, himself said was going to, was going to come. And so if you're, if you're not taking his covenant, his ordinances, everything that he has inaugurated, and you're not making that the terms by which we all go and operate within, you know, the, the church that he is, he has called and inaugurated. If you're saying, Oh no, it's Moses and said, well, you, you're denying that Christ is actually authority. You're denying that he actually is the, the promised one. And in so doing, you're, you're cut off from him. You've, you've separated yourself from him. So I really think this isn't a matter of, um, you know, Paul, uh, uh, you know, being mean or Paul getting a new knife set and thinking of creative usages for it or anything like that. This is, I think that he really understands the gravity of going and saying, no, you have to go and strictly, uh, you know, adhere to the Mosaic covenant within the period of the new covenant. It's a denial that the new covenant itself has been inaugurated. Yeah, yeah, because it because your your actions betray your true belief much more than your words words do, and it's not about yeah. oh you're being tribal, you're preferring your own kind. No, you're you're uh, you're revealing that you secretly believe you're still trying to earn your way, or even you collectively are trying to earn your way back into being the chosen people through your behavior, rather than just accepting the hmm. the justification. Okay, so big question, perhaps the biggest question, and. Uh, 
can you back up and explain why we need justification in the first place? Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll t- I'm going to tell you a funny story. This is a parable. Funny that I, story. Yeah. I, I once heard it. a parable that was a criticism of Christian salvific thinking. Yes. And let's say there, what, there lived a despotic ruler in some mountainous kingdom, and he apprehended some trespassing trekkers who came into his lands and poached his deer and left a littered campsite, you know, American college students behaving badly. These crimes carry a penalty of death in my realm, the angry ruler exclaims, and he locks up these interlopers in his dungeon. Um, but later he has a change of heart and he says, you know what? I will release them because I'm feeling magnanimous. But first, I need to satisfy the law. So I'm going to execute my own son and let these guys go. Problem solved. That's a ridiculous story, but it's a criticism of our faith. What, what's the problem? How, why are we killing the Son of God to satisfy, to satisfy our great debt to him? Oh, man, that's great. Um, so... I should say that the best thing I can do for anyone, probably in any situation, uh, is to read St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Perfect. Um, St. Athanasius is, um, I mean, he's just unbelievable. And he, in this really lucid, fantastic kind of way, he, he actually goes in, in, in with a lot of analogies that are, that are quite similar. Um, he goes and tells you, you know, the real story, how it actually go, goes and work. And so I'm not going to go and try to give you a full, you know, paraphrasing of all of the, uh, on, on the incarnation. All I can say is anyone who wants to have an understanding of how it is that salvation works, why it is that God goes and acts the way that, that he does. Um, and, it, and somebody who would, you know, say, say to the person who, uh, you know, who would articulate something, something like that, um, which is, um, I mean, I guess you could say that's a, that's would, if one took it seriously, would be a rather sad kind of sub-Christian parody. But if you want the actual, hey, this is what Christians believe instead of what they don't believe, um, you, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better articulation of that than, than from St. Athanasius. Okay. So um, I highly, highly recommend that. If you think in terms of the image that was there, um, I guess you can say that almost every term within that story is incorrect in some kind of way. What, what I would probably focus on is I would probably focus on the, if we're thinking in terms of what is justification for answering that, why do we need justification? Um, justification is, and this is getting a little bit controversial as far as, you know, ecumenical, what's, what's the nature of just justification? Um, okay. Justification is God taking us who are sinners um, and not just sinners in the sense of, Hey, you know, you did, you did a bad thing, but people who are corrupt in our nature such that we haven't just done a couple of bad things, but we're people who by our own condition, we can't not do bad things. We just find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do. We damage ourselves. We damage the people around us. We recognize that this isn't the way that things should be, but for whatever reason, we can't seem to not do this. Justification is God taking us within that condition of brokenness and bringing us renewal, bringing us new life so that we no longer are people who walk in ways that are destructive towards ourselves, towards other people and, you know, dishonor, you know, the one who put us here, but instead 
become people who have this wholeness, who have this fullness of life, who have that, you know, the peace and joy and security that we were created to have. And this is something that is the gift of God. So both the you know, forgiving of the individual transgressions that, you know, we've, we've committed, but more importantly, the reparation of the inward condition that we have, the, the brokenness that we find within ourselves, the healing of this, this is something that God affects in us and he affects it. And I mean, in, you know, in ways that are mysterious through the incarnation, through himself coming and taking on the penalty for sin and being in expiation, going and taking this all away, bearing the burden of the punishment, and in some again mysterious way, making it so that the penalties associated with it and the condition itself is repaired. Now, how does all that work? Well, boy, you're going to end up getting pretty far away from works of the law to go and to say this. But okay. one way that one thing that you can say, and this is um, uh, this is you know, one of the things that Athanasius goes and talks about is that by God becoming a human, what happens isn't that God is in some way lowered so that he goes and loses his divinity because God being divine in nature, it's not really something you can, you can go and do. We can't just be like, oh, I'm not going to be God today. Sorry. Uh, you can't, you can't be what you, you know, not, not be what, what you are. Instead, what happens in God becoming incarnate is that in the assumption of humanity, human nature is itself brought up to this level of union with his own divine nature. And so it's really interesting for it. And, uh, you know, if you look in Athanasius and here, you can look up for any you know, early, early theologians. Um, it's not simply the cross, which is salvific, the incarnation itself. The, the cross is the climax of the incarnation, but it's God coming into human flesh. This goes in, in some way, contributes to the renovation of humanity uh, as, as well. That's what God's justifying action is. And so if you want to put it in, in the terms of the, um, you know, sort of the despotic ruler, et cetera, I guess more accurately, you can say that you have all of these drunk college students who, um, are themselves miserable as you know, I, I mean, you don't have to spend too much time as a drunk college student to recognize that you tend to not <laughs> end up being super happy by this. It's why you, yeah. you know, or one of the reasons why you get a lot of suicide among, you know, drunk college students, because, you know, being a drunk young, young adult doesn't actually lead you to any kind of, you know, lasting happiness and purpose. And you actually tend to act in ways that are, you know, sure. just destructive towards yourself, towards other people. And what the, the despot is doing is not going and saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to punish you for all this. And then instead of doing that, I'm going to punish somebody else. Okay. See you guys later. What he is doing is he is actually in ways that are hard for us to conceive of because no despot, you know, in an earthly way has his power. He is actually healing the wound that is inside of you, the wound that makes it so that you go and do all of these destructive things. And it's by his justifying action that you are made from this, again, miserable, drunk college student who's going and, you know, poaching people's deer, leaving litter, et cetera, into the kind of person who actually lives with the fullness of life that, you know, God intended for all of us to have. So um, anyway, that's a, I could talk forever yeah. just on that well, question. I can me. tie it back in. What? So let me 
change it to now the college students have fallen into a pit. And so he yes. sends his son to go show them the way out. And they go, he has to go all the way down into the bottom of the pit and say, okay, guys, here's how you tie a rope. Here's how you climb up. And not only does he carry them out physically, but in the process, they can learn how to actually climb and subsist in this mountainous kingdom and enjoy it for what it and is. You can, and you can take it a bit further. It's not just, hey, let me let you out of the pit because you do have that. But in, in, in coming in the person of his son, this is something that actually goes and costs the person their own life. And so if you think of, you know, some sort of rescue operation, say, you know, these drunk college students you know, the, instead of a pit, it's a, it's a river and they're, they're drowning in a river. Um, it's, it's, you know, the despot, you know, going and coming in the person of his son and coming down and rescuing them from, you know, from drowning in the river and then dying in the process, giving his own life to go and to save, save these, these other people who, you know, they, he doesn't owe them anything. If anything, they, they owe him. And nevertheless, you know, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So anyway, you can can go all kinds of fun places with, with this analogy. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, I think you did a lot in very little, very economic answer. And maybe we can return to Athanasia's next year and and have, you know, yeah, as long as there's hot dogs involved, always, I'll I'll sign up. (laughs) Um, Okay. So one word I learned from you is Pelagian. And this is something that was in your book a lot. And I, I have to look it up. Uh, but anyway, um, you, all, you will say Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or proto-Pelagian. You're referring to a guy named Pelagius or thinkers who we call after his name, even if he himself was a little hard to p- pin down exactly, but people yes. who believe that we could perfect ourselves. And so um, that sounded to me like half the self-help books in Barnes & Noble or half the videos that sort of pop up on YouTube. <laughs> hey, if I got the perfect three-step program for you, if only you you know, drink more water and wear blue string around your forehead, whatever it is, you know? Like, um, <laughs> the, and I think that insults Paul because he had a thorn in his side that God never took out, right? He never yeah. correct, like he couldn't correct it. God would not correct it. And, and God told him, you know, my grace isn't enough for you. And we, you know, who even if we're not, drunk college students, there is something wrong with each and every one of us. We all have our, our particular thorn or very often plural thorns. Um, how, how, how does Paul think about that? How do you, how do you understand it? Yeah. So one thing that I think is, is important is, um, to not conflate the, uh, you know, Paul's Jewish opponents, with Pelagius and his followers and Pelagius is, you know, one of St. Augustine's you know, big opponents. Um, I do think that you can, you know, draw analogies between them in different areas. And, and so just tell us that's around the year 400. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 400 round number that, that totally, totally works. Yeah. So there you can, you can draw analogies and you can say, Oh, you know, there might be a similarity in this area, but I think that both from a standpoint of understanding Second Temple Jews and what, you know, the Judaizers are doing and, you know, Paul's opponents in Galatia and Antioch and everything like that. Um, I think that for understanding where they're coming from and then also understanding where Pelagius is coming from and kind of what's unique in his context, we actually, I think that we we don't do either of the figures justice from going and saying, oh, the Jews were just Pelagians or, you know, Pelagius was just, he was a Judaizer or something like that. They they really are addressing distinct kinds of contexts and for, for distinct reasons. Um, Pelagius, if you're saying, what is he, it seem that he is, is saying what's, 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 what's he doing? Um, we, 
there's a historical issue here of trying to get to the real Pelagius. Does he go and actually say these things? Um, is it, uh, are these the fairest kind of things? Even in his own day, this was something that was frustrating because, um, you know, St. Augustine said, hey, Pelagius is saying this guy's a heretic. He's like, he's totally nullifying the grace that God goes and gives us in the gospel. Um, and so we got to have a council and go and like examine that guy's stuff and condemn because this really is condemnable stuff. Great. Call the council or do this thing. And then they go and they call the council and Pelagius is like, oh, no, I don't know if I said that. And like, oh, like, he says he didn't say that. So I think it's great. And so even in even in St. Augustine's day, mm-hmm. it was uh, he was a, um, a, a, a a bit of a slippery fish. Um what we, what we can do is say, we can say at least Pelagianism. We can say, hey, this is the idea associated with the individual. And the idea would be that God's grace is essentially external to us. It is external, which means that God is going to, he'll give you his teaching. He'll give you his self-help book. But ultimately, this comes down to you you going in, you follow the self-help book, you do the kinds of stuff that you know, that is, that is what God's grace is. And from the Augustinian standpoint, and I think from the, honestly, just the, the broader Christian standpoint, because when, in, in objecting to Pelagius, um, St. Augustine isn't saying something that I think is in, in essence different from what the church preceding him, him said, even though it's, you know, it's a new challenge in a sense that that's there. What St. Augustine, I think the tradition would go and say is, yeah, like God's teaching is grace. Absolutely. That's fantastic. That is a part of his grace. That's an expression of his grace, but teaching is not itself sufficient. Um, we, the, the issue isn't just that we don't have enough good information. The inform the, the issue is our interior material is, has, 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 has issues. We, we, we don't just need better teaching. We need healing. We need renovation. Mm-hmm. And that healing is something that Christ goes and gives us through all the means that he goes and does that. So through, through baptism, through the Eucharist, through the relationship that we have with him, through, through prayer and our own, our own faith, through things like, you know, uh, you know, confession and confirmation and all kinds of, all, all this fantastic stuff, all of the ways that he goes and does this, he goes and he communicates his own life to us and both plants this divine life within us, within, within baptism and heals sort of the, the sin of Adam within us. And it goes and nurtures this life so that we actually, you know, become sons and daughters of the living God that if you can take, you know, the, the line that, uh, that he Christ is bringing, you know, many other, you know, sons to glory that he is in a sense, we truly become become his his brother um that is what christian salvation is from uh from the augustinian standpoint and from this standpoint i think of really you know the orthodox christian tradition before before and after him um the issue with pelagius is it seems as though in trying which is a good thing that he's i think trying to do in trying to place stress on the ethical demands of the Christian life and of our capacity to respond to them, he ends up underestimating, you can say, the impact of sin within us. And the fact that ultimately, you know, Christianity isn't just a bunch of, you know, good teaching. It's, it's, it's an actual healing of the inward brokenness and wounding that, that we have. C.S. Lewis puts this probably better than anybody in, in mere Christianity. He says, like, if Christ is just 
a you know a, a you know great moral teacher how is that going to help us it's like these have no use to us like because if you look humanity has had other great moral teachers before and guess what we did we ignored them like we, yeah. if you look at you know socrates or you know confucius or buddha whoever happens to be it's like we've had all kinds of great moral teachings even fantastic moral teachings and the better that they were the less that we listened to them and so if we have the very best moral teacher of all guess what that's going to mean absolutely nothing we'll listen to him even less because the nature of who of who we are as human beings he says if all he came to do is to just give us even better moral teaching, the very purest, you know, kind of moral uh, laws, etc. If that's all it is, then he is of no use to me whatsoever. It's only because Christ actually goes and imparts the life that he actually, you know, he gives the new heart that you see in things like, you know, Jeremiah and, uh, you know, Ezekiel. He actually goes and changes us. It's only because of that, that his teachings are actually useful to us and intelligible. And I think that if you... You know, this is something where, uh, you know, I have a background in inner city ministry. This is something that, you know, I've, I've felt this a lot as far as if you try to go and tell people to, uh, you know, obey by the teachings of, you know, obey the teachings of Christ, you know, go love your enemies, et cetera, do all these things that are great things. But if you try to do them apart from the actual empowerment that God brings and the motivation that, you know, he causes to, you know, to, to live to live within us, then ultimately I think we end up disappointed. We find that great. That was a great idea to love your enemies, but nobody did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and it's because it's not just, hey, we need somebody to teach us the right thing. We need somebody to come and change our hearts so that we actually want this good teaching. We want what's right and good. Well, there seems to be two different paradoxes here. One is that uh, Pelagian view is like, you can do it on your own, just, you know, be your best self. Um, but really, it's, you know, the the August, Augustinian point of view would then be like, actually, no, you, it's, it's a many steps, many of them are sacraments or sacramentals, where you slowly, slowly are turning your ship around. And it takes a long time. But really, what you're doing is you're conforming your heart and giving your will over to God's will. And in some way, you might say this is showing you have less will. But on the other hand, I think many Christians would say, well, you're going to serve somebody, right? Every every recovering alcoholic says, like, I actually have no power over this thing. And I'm either going to serve this alcohol or I'm going to serve God. And I'm going to, you got to pick who it is that you serve. And even that choice, paradoxically, is an act of of will, of saying, I, I'm now, you know, turning my heart um, this way. So so that there's one paradox there. And then the other one, which um, I think you, you discovered in your um, inner city ministry, certainly Father Greg Boyle, talks about this a lot is like you can't you can't change gangs you can only change individuals who participate in gangs and you can't actually change them by lecturing them and wagging your finger and saying do better all you can do is love them and love them again and love them again and love them again and then one day they realize oh yeah this guy really loves me doesn't matter what i do and therefore i'm gonna start doing different things because that's kind of the appropriate response not because i'm expected to not because i'm going to gain points or lose points or gain standing or lose standing all of that is I am redeemed in already through the love. There's nothing I can do to screw this up. In the, today's sin, tomorrow's sin, all the sins from now till I'm dead, there's nothing I can do that will, you know, nor, nor thrones, nor dominions, nor uh, angels, nor whatever can can take it away from me. Yeah, I think that there's, I, I mean, this this kind of stuff. You, I mean, you tell, I, I actually got into this question from, 
you know, working in inner city ministry, these kinds of questions about faith and works and all these kinds of stuff and how it all relates to each other. Um, it, this was the actual lived context, you know, for me where I was, you know, where I was wrestling you know, with, with these questions. And so even though this all might seem really academic erudite, um, you know, nerdy, take your, take your word. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's rooted ultimately in, in questions like this and real, you know, lived, Hey, how do we, how do we live as Christians and how do we, do we help others to do as well? How do we, how do we share what it is that, you know, that God has, has, has given us? So, um, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think that you're, you know, the reference you have to, uh, what, what father Greg says there, um, is right. It's like you ultimately, like, you can't, you can't just say, Hey guys, this is bad. Don't go and do this. I mean, which that itself is, I don't want to say that that's, that that's, that's, without value because telling the truth is always valuable but ultimately i think what each of us you know needs is is regeneration and that regeneration that you know the taking of our brokenness and healing it and you know sort of binding the wounds that we have in, internally and bringing us to a new a new kind of life a new kind of purpose these are things that we get from the one who made us we don't get this from, you know, we don't get this just by our own sort of self-effort. We don't get this by a government program. We get this through our encounter with the one who made us, who also desires to redeem each of us and to bring us, you know, to the fullness of life that he's, you know, intends for, for each of us. So, um, anyway, we're getting maybe slightly beyond, yeah. beyond the book, well, but it's, it's would... fun because it's taking the, the, the book itself as the sort of the starting point and then getting to, Hey, what do you actually do? With well, I, I think so. And really from your book where, especially these, um, uh, second century, uh, sources like this, this theology existed in the very, very beginning of the church. Like for example, Irenaeus of, of Leon, whom you pointed me to, uh, when we were emailing, um, he talks about a law of liberty, right? Lex libertatis, and that's an that's a law, but it frees you. Uh, yeah, that's that's a par- paradox there. And um, you know, Justin Martyr in in his d- d- uh, dialogue with, with Trifo has very similar images, where like you know, Jesus reigning from the wood, or salvation from a Passover, him being the Passover. There is there is a Christ is useless to those who observe the Mosaic law. It's in chapter twenty nine. Like I learned a lot of these things from from your um, citations and discussion of these of these early people who understand these things in a way, you know, we we often don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so another question is like, why aren't all of these patristic apostolic fathers, you know, earlier sources? Why are they not in the Bible? <laughs> is it just because they're so long and we don't want to like yeah. dwarf the gospel, which of course should be at the center or is it because not everybody agrees on their um authority or or they're less inspired by the holy spirit what do you think yeah that's that's a really good question um i think if you're looking at you know your your early early sources kind of after the period of the new testament if you think of you know well why why do you have a new testament in the first place like what what is that what is that there for what's that there there to do um and the New Testament, you know, where, what, like, what are the qualities of the, of the documents that unite the New Testament? Um, they're texts that belong to that first apostolic generation. So either directly Christ's own apostles or those who were, you know, directly working with them. And so if you think of, you know, Mark's gospel, for example, and Mark being, you know, Peter's interpreter, the one who was recording, you know, the, the preaching of Peter, um, it is the material that belongs 
to that first generation of the apostles. And that first generation of the apostles, I think, is meant to be the example for all subsequent generations of those who are, you know, following as their successors, who are, you know, disciples, who are, you know, trying to learn, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, kind of all the way down to everybody. And so because of that, what the New Testament does is the New Testament basically puts together the testimony, the witness that we have of the, you know, the sources from this, this first apostolic generation. It does, and it goes and preserves them for us as a rule where we can go and say, hey, this, we know that we can measure whatever it is that we're doing against what it is that Christ did through his, you know, original apostles here. And so um, this means that if we're trying to think, hey, what should we do in this area? Or how, you know, how do I live as a disciple in this area? Whatever happens to be, um, we have this to refer back to as a guide to kind of measure our own, our own steps. Now, to say that there is a unique value and and a unique authority to that first generation doesn't mean that the second generation, the third generation, or the 55th generation, or any of those were either faithful or unfaithful to what it is that they, they had been given. And so to say that, you know, well, the second generation writings aren't, you know, they're not inspired, they're not canonical. That doesn't mean that they were, you know, like unfaithful or anything like that. And if anything, actually, you would sort of presume the opposite. If you're thinking in terms of the kinds of things that Christ goes and speaks to the church as far as, you know, uh, you know, behold, I am with you until the end of the age. It's like, well, does the age end like immediately? Because um, if not, you would think that Christ is going to remain with the church and continue guiding the church. Or if you think of when he says that, you know, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, comforter he's going to lead you into all, all truth. Well, that continuing to lead into all truth continued on for a long time and still continues on today. And so if the Holy Spirit remains with the church, then you would think that, you know, the subsequent writings are going to be valuable. The things that are attested as being like, hey, this within this generation was, you know, was really valuable as a as a piece of Christian testimony. You would expect that this is going to be useful in the way that, I don't know, like mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis is useful the way that I go and, yeah. go and quote, quote him. So to say that this is, um, it, it's it not in any way to undervalue it or to sort of assume that these later, you know, writings um, aren't themselves valuable and particularly valuable as a, uh, I guess you could say, as a witness to the kinds of things that scripture is talking about, because you can have instances where something might not be, it, it might admit of more than one interpretation if you're just looking at the text itself. But if you look at the text within the broader context of the life and witness of the early church, you think, oh, this is what this means. And so, I mean, the scuttle example is always the best one. It's like, scuttle in the little mermaid you know he gets the fork and he mm-hmm. says well this is a dingle hopper and yeah. you know all the humans go and they use it to comb their hair with and boy if that's not plausible <laughs> if you don't have any context to measure this against that i mean you go twirl your hair and it kind of goes and it, it does it does the job you can think yeah this this works as a, as a dingle hopper you can see a good case for it before it it's only within the actual lived context that you see no, even though there's a real kind of brilliance that Scuttle has, even though it's a, you know, it's a good idea, it turns out that's not a dingle hopper. That's a fork and you yeah. don't use it. Humans don't use it to, you know, comb their hair with it. Uh, they use it to, you know, eat 
things with. So that's, I think the value of, you know, early testimony and, and filling out the historical context is that it helps us to interpret scripture in a way that isn't isolated in such a way that you can basically do the scuttle thing all the time, um, which sometimes I sort of think that all biblical scholars are scuttle and that <laughs> <laughs> they often just end up atomizing things so that you can make a plausible case for basically anything, which is fun, but not actually useful. This, this, you know, looking at early interpretation, looking at the way that these texts were used in the early life of the church helps us to not be scuttle, helps us to not end up with a bunch of forks in our hair. Yeah. That is, thank you. That's a, though you that that's a perfect that's a perfect answer, a perfect place to stop. And I know it's nap time in two minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, Professor Matthew Thomas, would you say a blessing for our listeners and their families in our world? Yeah, absolutely. Father, we ask that you would give your blessing to each of those who are hearing this. We ask that you would open all of our eyes to discern the wonderful things that are in your word. And so that through your word working in us, we might be brought to the new life that you desire for each of us so that we can become the manifestation of your glory in this world. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me. Chris O'Dinius and Matthew Thomas recorded this conversation on June 22, 2022, the feast day of St. Thomas More. He was my patron saint at my confirmation many years ago. He was a great Renaissance humanist and courtier of Henry VIII, friends with Erasmus, author of Utopia. But when his king wanted to start his own church so he could divorce his wife, Thomas did not go along with it and paid with his life, receiving the crown of martyrdom. I recommend the movie A Man for All Seasons. That's about him. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and...